Let us now take our Bibles for this morning's scripture reading, which is found in Matthew chapter 14. We'll read the whole chapter. So Matthew chapter 14. Matthew 14. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are all at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people, because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths, and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, to th- said bring, here, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up the twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. 
But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gernesit. And then, and when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Our text for this morning is Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 33, which we just read earlier. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we think of old detective novels or mystery shows or movies, there is a a common trope, a common theme or event that happens often in the mystery genre. It's that moment where the detective examines the crime scene. Maybe someone has stolen a priceless jewel, and so the top detective comes in to investigate. And he looks around, and what does he find? Uh, A turned-over stool, a cup of milk, uh, an open book. And although all these clues don't really seem to be linked together, as the book continues or the show continues, it makes perfect sense by the end of the book when there's the grand reveal, how all these clues led us to the conclusion that it was the Dutch dairy farmer who stole the jewel. Now, when it comes to our Bible, we all have an understanding that the Old Testament and the New Testament are linked together. But often, we can find that to be a bit puzzling. We know Scripture is connected by history or through covenant or because it is God's inspired word, to name a few examples. Yet, the foundational lens in which the Reformed Church views all of Scripture is through a redemptive historical hermeneutic. That is to say, the bigger picture, the main thread, both in the Old and New Testament, is found in the life and work of Jesus Christ. Therefore, when we look at the Old Testament, we don't merely just look at the narrative itself, but we dig deeper to see how some of these narratives in biblical history, or those figures God used, symbolize, expect, or point to Christ in some way. The, fir- the church father, Augustine, while writing about the connection between the Old and New Testament, famously wrote, The new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. What Augustine was saying, or in other words, was that the Old and New Testaments work in tandem with each other. They cannot be separated from one another. And both halves of your Bible reveal each other. They don't just complement, but expand our understanding of our wonderful God. So when you read Old Testament passages, there is Christ. 
And when we see Christ in the New Testament, he is likewise revealing something about the Old Testament, which means very simply that Christ changes how we read the Old Testament. So today we will look at how Jesus works in Matthew chapter 14. As our Lord walks upon the stormy water, we will explore the significance of this passage under the following theme and points. Our theme then for this morning is the miracle of Jesus walking on water brings an end to fear. First, by his revelation, and second, by his salvation. So point number one. Since we are jumping into Matthew chapter 14, it'd be good to know some of the surrounding context before going right to verse 22. So Matthew's gospel was primarily written to reach a Jewish audience, to persuade them into understanding that Jesus is the Messiah. Matthew does this by consistently hearkening back to the Old Testament prophecies and showing how Jesus fulfills them. Another one of the ways Matthew accomplishes this task is by displaying Jesus as the greater Moses. From the beginning of the gospel, you have many things that parallel both Jesus' and Moses' life. After the birth of Jesus, Herod the Great sought that male infants under the age of two were to be slain, which of course parallels the days of Pharaoh where he ordained that male infants be killed. Moses, of course, escapes death and goes on to be God's chosen leader of Israel, acting as a prophet and priest for God's people in exile. Jesus also escapes death, and he comes not to be just a leader of God's people, but the leader of God's people. Truly, Jesus is the greater prophet, the greater priest, and our greater king. As we turn to chapter 14, the parallels between Jesus and Moses do not stop, but actually expand. In verse 13 through 21, we see that Jesus is ministering to the crowds in the desolate place. And in the desolate place, he feeds them through a miracle. And this miracle from Jesus is reminiscent of the miracle of manna raining down from heaven, while Moses led Israel while they were in exile in the desolate place. So Jesus is more and more revealing who he is to the people around him. And our text that we turn to today is no different. In verse 22 and 23, it says, Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. After spending time with the crowd, Jesus sends the people away, and also his disciples, choosing for himself to go and pray in solitude. We might wonder why Jesus goes up the mountain by himself to pray. And in this case, we have some answers. The parallel passage of Jesus feeding the 5,000 in the gospel of John adds this detail. In John 6, verse 15, it says, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, 
Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus leaves so that the people would not take and make him king. And that might be perplexing. That might confuse us. Why would Jesus not want to be king? Well, our answer can be found in the crowd. What type of king did the crowd want? They wanted a king to overthrow Rome. A king that was also a prophet who could perform great miracles in the name of God. But the people want this, wanted this not because they wanted to further God's agenda, but their own. What the crowd really wanted was an earthly kingdom like Caesar, like Rome. Yet Jesus tells us in John 18, verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. Jesus' mission was not to become another Caesar. He was on a mission to redeem the world from sin. His eyes were not on the kingdom of man, but the kingdom of God. After Jesus has left the crowds, he goes up to the mountain. He is alone, and he begins to pray. Jesus desires communion with his heavenly Father. Jesus' ministry on earth was shaped by prayer. The Bible records Jesus praying 25 different times during his earthly ministry, which isn't to say that's how many times he prayed in total. Rather, it outlines the times and situations Jesus chose to go to his Father in prayer. Whether in times of trial or temptation, Jesus, who is truly God and truly man, goes to the Father in prayer. Do you want to grow in obedience? Do you want to be able to resist sin? Do you want a more meaningful love of God? Then we all need to pray. We may wonder what Jesus was praying about during this time in solitude. Well, during Jesus' earthly ministry on earth, Jesus would often pray directly to the Father. He would pray that God would be glorified, for example. And also importantly, Jesus would pray for his disciples, those that hear his word specifically. John 17, verse 9, Jesus prays for his disciples, saying, I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me for they are yours. And if we think about what is going on right now, we have two very dramatic scenes playing out. On one hand, Jesus is play, praying in solitude. There is a sense of calm, a sense of peace. Whereas the disciples are battling against the waves of the sea. In verses 24 through 25, it says, But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. It is common for harsh storms to arise suddenly on the Sea of Galilee. Some of the disciples were very experienced fishermen, they knew how to handle themselves on a boat. But reading this passage, you get a strong sense that this storm is just completely overwhelming them. 
there was a severe storm, and they were really struggling. On top of that, Jesus did not come to them until the fourth watch of the night. So that means that the disciples originally left Jesus on the shore and began sailing on their boat sometime between 9.30 or 7.30 and 9.30 at night. And because of the storms, they were still struggling against the waves during the fourth watch of the night, somewhere between 3 to 6 a.m., Even at best, that's five and a half hours of struggling through this terrifying storm. The disciples must have been exhausted. And because of the intensity of the storm, they were likely very afraid. If we think back to earlier in Matthew's gospel, we would notice that the disciples have been in the middle of storms before while sailing. There is one such instance in Matthew chapter 8 where the storm is raging on and Jesus is sleeping in the boat. So the disciples wake him up in desperation and Jesus calms the storm. But unlike in chapter 8, unlike it, where Jesus is there with them to immediately bring peace, the disciples are facing this storm and Jesus is not with them. They are alone in the dark and stormy sea. There is a sense where this scenario also plays out in our own lives, or at least we feel it playing out. There are times when Jesus seems to be missing from the action, from our lives. The, The storm has surrounded us. We have been battling against it for hour after hour with no relief. We may think, does this suffering really need to be this long, Lord, or this harsh? And faced with suffering, we have essentially two responses we can make. We can either think that our suffering is meaningless or meaningful, that there is a reason God has put you in that situation for that time, or that it's all just random. What our Heavenly Father teaches is that He has appointed man to both live and die. Job 14 verse 5 tells us, Since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. Or again, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 6 verse 27 saying, And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his lifespan? So we must accept that God knows our future. He knows when we will be born and when we will be buried. But we must all know, along with God ordaining life and death, He also ordains goodness. Romans 8.28 tells us, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. God works everything for good. good. Our suffering is not meaningless, but has a purpose that we may not fully understand. Yet our Lord promises to be with us always. The storm left the disciples helpless, but Jesus still came to them walking out on the waters. 
We continue in verse 26, which says, But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. It was common for people of that time, for Roman and both Jewish cultures, to see the sea as representing chaos. There were certain cultural myths that the spirits and evil resided in large bodies of water. To many people of that time, the sea was simply the great unknown. So you could imagine the dread of the disciples hours after terrible storms, and now more evil has come. But it says in verse 27, But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Jesus calls out to them, telling them, Take heart, it is I. And this is really interesting, be, interesting because what Jesus is really saying in the Greek is, Take heart, I am. God is identified as the I am in Scripture. Famously, when Moses asked the name of God in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, God replied back to Moses, I am who I am. God is known in Scripture as our Lord over all creation, even the stormy waters, as it says in Job 9, verse 8, who, al who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Or think back to creation in Genesis where the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. Jesus has revealed his divine nature. And he is using his power not merely to show off, but to go to his disciples and to bring them help. And help is what they will receive. Which brings us to our second point, by his salvation. In verse 28, it says, And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Peter asked to come to Jesus out on the water. And we may ask, why does Peter do this? Why does he request this? Why not just wait for Jesus to come to the boat? Well, if we think about who Peter was as a disciple, he could often come across as an impulsive character who was quick to respond to Jesus. For example, think about how in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus is asking his disciples, who do you think I am? Peter is quick to respond first saying, you are the Son of God. At other times, Peter's answer causes Jesus to rebuke him. When Jesus tells his disciples he will be killed and raised up again on the third day, Peter goes to rebuke Jesus, telling him that this should not happen. Jesus responds to him by saying, Get behind me, Satan. So Peter asks to come to Jesus, and this is something that Peter asks in faith. There's no precedent for a disciple walking on water. Yet Peter is confident that Jesus can do whatever he commands. Some commentators have suggested that maybe Peter was being prideful in this moment. He wanted to show the other disciples that he was the best disciple. But this does not really seem to be the case. Peter did not want to forsake the safety of the boat because of his pride 
or because he wanted to share in the spotlight. No, in faith, Peter simply wanted to go to Jesus. And so we see in verse 29, it says, He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. So Peter steps out of the boat and begins walking towards Jesus. And what a beautiful picture of how we all strive to come to be closer with Christ. We are all on a journey where we are to keep our eyes on Jesus. Chaos is around us. Evil is at the gates. Yet with our eyes fixed on Christ, not going to the left or to the right, but straight to Him, we will have peace. But the moment does not last forever. In the first part of verse 30, it says, But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. Peter notices the crashing waves, maybe some water splashed up against his body. And he starts to notice once again the storm, the wind that was against them. And he begins to sink. He lost what his eyes were to be fixed on and instead fixated on the danger around. Jesus had already told his disciples as he approached the boat to have courage. Yet Peter was now showing doubt. The dangers, of the, fear, the dangers and fears of this world overcame him. And at that moment, he began to sink into the sea. That's when Peter does what we all should do in times of trouble. When our faith is weak or when we doubt the truth, Peter cries out to Jesus, Lord, save me. And it says in verse 31, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? Immediately, Jesus saves Peter. No questions asked. Jesus does not take hours to respond to Peter's request, even though Peter had just doubted Jesus. Jesus does not take out a vengeance on him. Instead, Jesus displays great grace and mercy. He does not leave Peter in his own consequence for doubting, but stretches out his hand and saves Peter. And the scene playing out is very reminiscent of Psalm 69, verse 14, in which the psalmist cries out to God saying, Stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from the many waters. Jesus then offers a brief word of rebuke to Peter. Why did you doubt? Peter had walked with Jesus. He had seen miracle after miracle. Yet even Peter at times failed to always faithfully serve our Lord. Yet it is important to note that while Jesus is disappointed with Peter's inadequate faith, Peter has actually acted in greater faith than any of the other disciples. Peter is the one that is both learning and growing in that moment. Faith cannot be worked up by formulas or emotion, but it grows through various tests as we continue to trust our Lord and He continues to teach us. Faith grows out of a relationship with the person of Jesus and in no other way. The text then concludes in verse 32 and 33 saying, 
And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Jesus' power leads the disciples to believe in Jesus, confessing his true nature. When we recognize Jesus' works, thereby learning more of his character, the appropriate response is to worship him. This will deepen our relationship of faith with the Lord we love. And while Peter and the rest of the disciples were rescued from the storm they were facing, some of us may wonder, why doesn't God do the same for me? Why doesn't Jesus immediately pull me out of my suffering here on earth? And maybe an illustration might help. In 2018, there was a children's soccer team that was exploring caves in Thailand. And due to a flash flood, there was heavy rainfall at the entrance of the cave that they were exploring, and it became so flooded that this children's soccer team was now trapped in the cave. Now, rescuers were alerted within 24 hours and began their mission to save these kids right away. But for days, neither parties had contact with each other. The soccer team had no access to the outside world. Their phones or cell phones had no reception down there deep in the cave. And the massive teams of rescuers knew that the children were there in the cave, but did not know exactly where. Now, eventually, both parties made contact, and all the children and the coach were saved thanks to God and, and thanks to literally thousands of people working together to get everybody out. And although everyone was saved in the end, the experience of being trapped in a cave would have been terrible. There would have been real suffering as they waited for rescue. As for us in the church, we deal with real suffering, real heartache, real trial, and real temptation. And there often will be times in our lives where everything just falls down, everything crumbles down around us, and what we're left with in that moment is our foundation. And that is the foundation of Christ. Because we know that Christ will never leave us nor forsake us. So he is our bedrock, our firm foundation. And the foundation of Jesus is what allows us to continue to paddle on against the storm. Our foundation allows us to call out to Jesus to be our help. And he will help us. We can call out to Jesus and he will help us. And that help may not look like an immediate rescue from your worldly suffering or your deep emotional turmoil that you may have, but unlike those who were in the cave who wondered if help would ever arrive, our eternal help has been secured for us, guaranteed for us, promised for us. God has given us his word and spirit, so that we may know the truth. Because ultimately, our help, our hope, has been secured in what Jesus has done on the cross. 
As Christians, God has elected us in the eternity past to be his people. He has secured us in his eternal counsel and has redeemed us through Christ's blood that was shed on the cross. And in the future, we have an amazing, awe-inspiring hope that we will be reunited with Christ in the new kingdom of God. Everything is in God's control. We are now living in this in-between time of what has already been done for us and our future hope. In a lot of ways, the church in our modern, modern age is like the disciples battling against the storm. We follow Jesus, but the trials of this world can be very rough. The storms shake us wildly. The waters may threaten to drown us, yet we know that Jesus will return for his people. He will save his people when they fail at times to keep their eyes on him. He will redeem them and he will love them forever. Our Lord Jesus says in Revelation chapter 22, Behold, I am coming soon. And to that we say, Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.